Um, I was thinking this week just about um, all of these rules that we grow up on as kids. So maybe your parents said things like this. Clean your room. Finish your, finish your dinner. Or things like, um, go to bed now. Teachers in school would have said things like, hey, hey, no talking during class. People would end up getting a detention, potentially, for disobeying that rule. Did anyone ever get in trouble for talking in class? Yeah, many people. I would have guessed some of you, actually, who raised your hands just now. Or things like your parents would say, like, to me, would be like, stop, stop bugging your sister. Um, my sister's terrified of whales and sharks, which makes sense because she grew up on the prairies. <laughs> um, but the one time uh, with my brother, we had a big poster of just whales, like all the different kinds of whales. And we had a, like an awesome great white shark poster where it's just the head coming out of the water. So we went into our sister's room and um, carefully pulled back the covers on her bed and then put all of these posters <laughs> under the covers so that when it was time for bed, she'd move her covers and there's a big great white shark head. Yeah, and her fear on this is to the point where um, if she's like scrolling through some nature thing on her phone and a shark pops up, she's thrown her phone. Um, so she was terrified. But I don't think ever that I can remember my parents ever said something like, Eric, could you please um, take a little bit of time away to psychoanalyze your deep-seated internal motives for harassing your sister? I can't remember that happening. It was usually just, stop doing that or do this. And we're used to those kind of things, I think, when we grow up because it's just these black and white things that are like, it's either right or wrong. Just do this and you're right. Do this and you're wrong. And I think so many of the rules that we had in, in home and school were mostly just about this like external behavior modification, right? It was rarely about like the deep parts of your heart. So if you looked the part and everything seemed okay, yeah, you're fine. Your external actions were fine, you're good. And I actually think that we relate a lot to the Bible in the same way, right? Some instructions in scripture are easy to follow. Things like uh, from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. I haven't murdered anyone today. Pretty easy to follow that one, generally. But we've been going through a series on James, and today we find ourselves in a spot where it's Maybe a little bit more subtle, the things that James is pointing to. 
where he's actually starting to, to say, hey, I want to go just beyond maybe the surface level stuff, and I want to point to some of the motives and some of the things that drive us behind. So we're going to look at James, starting in chapter 4, verse 11, and going through to chapter 5, verse 6. And in here we find that James gives us three warnings. It's like a little trident of warnings that he's going to prod us with today. And um, what, I, what I'd invite you to do, if you have your Bible or you have it on your phone, is actually engage with the word today yourself. I'm going to unpack some stuff, but maybe more than what I'm saying, I'm, I'm hoping that you, okay, God, what do you want to say to me today from James? So let's dig in a little bit more together. Um, James is a weird book in some ways to preach from because he kind of just goes, well, here's what you should do. So when you like preach it, you kind of just go, oh, yeah, what James said. But we're going to push a little bit further today. Okay, so let's start in verse 11. Starts with warning against judging others. A warning against judging others. It says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? So there's two things that are fairly direct that James says here, and one that's maybe a little bit more, um, well, maybe different or a little bit more subtle. So we'll just start and we'll tackle these two things that are very direct. The first sentence in verse 11 says, don't speak evil against each other. This is James being very direct. Don't speak evil against each other. So what did your parents probably tell you? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. James said that first. Don't speak evil against each other. And you notice that it's against each other, brothers and sisters. So we know that James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and this was not a letter to non-believers. This was a letter to believers. That means that in the church, there was people speaking evil against each other. And for me, in reflecting on this, we really need to work on making sure that our relationships in here are really good and really healthy so that we can actually bear a good witness to a world that's absolutely torn apart with bad relationships. If we can get how we talk about each other right in here, that can be a testimony 
a new person comes in and they go, wow, it's so encouraging here. I feel so built up just, just by showing up here. And why would somebody want to join a church family that's potentially more dysfunctional than their earthly family? Just very practical. We don't get to choose our earthly family, but we can choose our church family. And James is saying, don't judge each other. Or sorry, don't speak evil against each other. So the counterpoint to that is that we want to be a church where people are celebrated and praised and championed. Where instead of finding something that you can tear down about someone else, you find every way to build each other up. The power of life and death is in our tongue. And when we decide that we're going to live, as James is saying, I won't speak evil. I won't. All of a sudden, that encouragement can begin to flow out of your mouth that builds up everyone around you. The second thing that's pretty straightforward and direct is the last sentence of verse 12. James says, what gives you the right to judge your neighbor? What gives you the right to judge your neighbor? So he's essentially going, um, what puts you in the, in the authoritative position of a judge over somebody else? And, and furthermore, then, what are your qualifications? We know how the legal system here works. It takes a long time to become somebody who sits as a judge. Like, you can't just go, oh, I heard there's an opening for a position to be a judge, and then you submit a resume with your soft skills and three references, and then they go, yeah, make some calls on a murder case. The actual qualifications that come in, and James is going, so... Um, if you're going to put yourself in the position to judge it, you know, do you have it all together? Have you reached such a complete level of perfection that you could elevate yourself over your neighbor? Or is it something where you just have it just slightly more together than your neighbor in the area that you're choosing to judge them? always easy to judge somebody else harsher than we'd like ourselves to be judged, right? Then James clearly states in, in verse 12 as well that God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So he's saying be very, very slow to elevate yourself to the position of judge. And we know when we read uh, other sections, Matthew 7, Jesus says, the same measure that you use in judging other people is the same measure that will be used to judge you. So if you want to put yourself in a position of being a judge over others, um, it's really God's spot, not yours. And furthermore, if I'm going to even entertain judging people, you know when you have the measuring cups and they start with like big ones and then they all like nest in each other? 
You want that last one where you kind of go, did anything even get in the recipe? It's so tiny that like one grain of salt, two grains of salt, and then you go, hopefully it's... Don't use this huge judgment measure against others because it will be measured back on you. Now, none of this is really all that new, right? It's stuff that we know. And I love that James reminds me of this again. But then tucked in the middle of these two very direct questions, he talks about judging God's law and how when we judge others, we judge God's law. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, in Matthew 22, Jesus gives us the two greatest commandments, right? He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first commandment. There's a second that's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then it says the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So we we end up at a spot where Jesus says, hey, love your neighbor. James reinforces it by saying, don't judge your neighbor. So how can you love someone and judge them at the same time? Judging others then puts you in direct violation of the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives us. The moment you start judging, you're going, um, actually, you know what? I think my judging is more important than uh, Jesus, when Jesus told me to love people. So you're basically going, um, because I'm going to be a judge now, I'm going to disregard other commandments that are very clear on loving my neighbor because I'd rather judge them. So I'd be very leery of putting yourself in a position where um, you're going to say that Jesus' greatest commandment don't apply to you by judging your neighbor. There's also this other great wisdom I I feel like James hints at here, um, where he's essentially just going, "Uh, why don't you just mind your own business? Right? Like, don't judge your neighbor. Don't speak evil of them. Just mind your own business. Stop worrying about what everybody else is doing and just tend to your own garden. (laughs) Manage your own life. I know for me, I could, well, I will spend my entire life just trying to work on this, let alone adding other work from other people. I've got plenty of work to do in myself, let alone starting to turn outward. Such a novel idea to just mind your own business and not worry so much about your neighbor. You'll probably also find you're slightly more fulfilled living that way. Okay, second warning. James says it's a warning about self-confidence. We read this in verse 13. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow, we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there 
and make a profit? How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's, it's here a little while, and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. So to give a little bit of context here, uh, there would be traders and merchants who would go town to town for different periods and sell the wares that they have there and then move on to the next town that maybe didn't have what they were selling. So this is likely something that would have been addressed to these kind of people that will go, yeah, this is exactly what's going to happen, and this is how it's going to go down. I'm going to go there. I'm going to make this much money. I'll support my family and provide for them. Then a year from then, I'm going to go over here. So if, if you're not a roving merchant trader, then how does this apply to you? Because when I'm reading it, there's part of it that sounds like you shouldn't plan anything. But then all through the rest of Scripture, there's things like write the vision down and make it clear. There's timelines. There's, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Is that like short, all short term? So when we come to a scripture like this, it's, it, it's a reminder to live our lives from the right perspective and the right position. Um, we can put our trust in so many things, our whole trust on so many things that we have zero control over. Um, if you put your hope in interest rates recently, put your hope in different financial trends or a new thing is happening. And but there's even things like it's, I assume I'll be healthy, but that can change in a moment. You put your trust in your employer or in relationships. Where do you put your trust? And, and furthermore, what do you run to when life gets chaotic and out of control? What's that thing that you go, oh, I'll just hold on to this? And James is calling his audience in this letter to get their lives into the proper alignment and their priorities in order by putting God first. It echoes what Jesus tells in Matthew 6, 33, where he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So there's an order to that verse, right? It doesn't say, God will give you everything you need. Then if you feel like it, live righteously. And it doesn't really matter if you seek the kingdom of God or not. No, it's actually put the kingdom of God first. Seek that first. Big piece in. Then I'm responsible for how I live. 
But God's also promised that he's going to provide and he's going to look after if we get things in the right order. And I love scriptures that I go to in uncertain times and in an uncertain world that remind me that the best place that I can put my trust and my faith is in a God that is trustworthy and never fails. Catherine just sang it. It wasn't on one of the slides, but she sang it anywhere. And she's saying, you're the God that can be trusted. What a great lyric. You'd think somebody would write a song with a lyric like that. The project. But Psalm 62, 6, it says, He alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress where I will not be shaken. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. This is who our God is. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do. And he will show you which path to take. We put our trust, we put our hope, we put our faith in God. Because we can make all of these other plans, but there's so much that we don't have control over. But when we start with Jesus as the foundation, Jesus as the base, Jesus at the core, it sets us up to be in a spot that no matter what comes our way, We're not shaken because we have a fortress that we go to. It doesn't matter what happens. I have a God that I'm running to. The third warning. It's actually kind of funny. These warnings end up kind of being encouraging, even though it's like warnings. A warning to the rich. Starts in verse 1 of chapter 5. This is some strong language. I'm just going to warn you. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. And your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay, The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. That's another good song lyric. Catherine. You can combine those, the trust, God who can be trusted, and this one about fattening yourselves for the day of slaughter. I'm going to give you a gold star. In verse 6, it says, you have condemned and killed innocent people who 
who do not resist you. Very strong language. We need to look carefully at what James is actually trying to communicate to his listeners. And um, again, a reminder that this isn't a word to people outside of the church. This was a word to people inside the church. There's two main issues that he addresses here. The first is the exploitation and abuse of workers under their employ. If you're killing or exploiting your workers, you're in the wrong, period. If you have workers and you're exploiting them, you're in the wrong. James is correcting you directly today. And it's kind of a double whammy, isn't it, if you're a person in the church? Because you should know better. He's not addressing somebody running a sweatshop somewhere else. This is a word to Christians, which means that Christians can actually be in a position where they're really not reflecting Jesus in any way as far as how they're dealing with their workers. If you're exploiting your workers, you're in the wrong. James is very clear and brings strong correction. But then there's this whole other picture of of hoarding and a bloated excess of wealth and money. And he says things like, your clothes are just rotting. It's, It's just like there's so much, but it's just going to waste. And there's this gross picture of just like as much as I can get, right? Like just this greedy clause and self-indulgent and this picture of like having so much like gluttonous that you're getting fat over it. Again, very strong imagery. So 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us that The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, that's true for all of humanity. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. The love of money is the root of of all kinds of evil. But if you're, you'd say you're not rich in your own estimation at least, it's easy to write off this entire correction as something that doesn't apply to you. And it's easy to point your finger at rich people and go, yeah, yeah, look at you hoarding. Oh, but then at that point, aren't you violating that first one that says, don't judge or speak evil of your... Oh, shoot. Money's always so interesting to talk about, isn't it? Especially in church. So a few things on this. Firstly, you need to be very careful how you define who is rich or poor because we live in a very, very big world. And secondly, whether we possess money or not, it's so easy to let it consume us. 
So Jesus talked about it in the parable of the farmer sowing seed in Matthew 13. He says in verse 22 that the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word. Listen to this. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this world and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. The message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. The good things that God wants to produce in your life, he's saying, can be choked out. But notice, um, he uses the word and, not or. So he's not saying that, that the message is crowded out by the worries of this life or the lure of wealth. He's saying the message is crowded out by the worries of this world and the lure of wealth. He didn't separate these things. So think about your own situation. Have you ever found yourself where, there, there where you're going, I'm not a greedy person, but all you think about is money and how am I going to get through and how's it going to work? And I wouldn't say I'm rich, but all you think about is money all the time. So where you're ending up in a spot where you go, if, oh, if I had more money, then I could fix this problem. And so these worries and this lure of wealth all play together where you end up in a spot where whether you're rich or poor, your life has been consumed with an obsession for money. So Jesus, in, in this section, and what James is getting at as well, is that his words can be choked out by a desire to have more money or a worry about not having enough of it. Either way, you found yourself focused on something other than God. I heard somebody say an interesting thing once where um, they said, the answer to the if only I had dot, dot, dot question will probably be a good indication of one of the idols that you hold in your life. If, if I only had this, then If I only had more of, and insert that for yourself, what are those things that you've said? So, so much of what James is saying here is related to the, the warning above of self-confidence as well and where are you putting your trust, right? It says these people are hoarding so much money and putting all of their trust in it and all their value in it. And it's filthy, and it will actually judge them in time. And the reminder here is to not let wealth or that love of money corrupt you. Don't let the worry over money corrupt you. And the antidote to greed is to live a generous life where you 
actively take your money and you give. You give it away to people in need. It's a generous life and it's an antidote to all that greed that can build up. I'd encourage everyone here, if you don't have a sponsor kit, I have one through Compassion. Get one. The poor are always, when you read through Scripture, so important to God. And you might feel like you don't have much where you are, but you still have enough that you could help someone else. Find somebody else in need, and whether you have a lot or a little, find a way to give to somebody else that maybe doesn't have as much as you do. Remembering that God holds a special place in his heart for the poor, and that could be a whole other sermon completely. Whether you're rich or poor, don't let this money thing consume you. So James has poked us with these three points on this trident, but if you are following along in your scriptures, you may have noticed that I skipped a verse if you're a real sleuth. Real Sherlock Holmes. Verse 17 of chapter 4. It says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. When we're talking about some of these things that deal more with our internal motives than our external behaviors alone, this verse is a crux of the issue that we find in these three warnings. This is a warning about judging others. We already know that it's wrong to do, but I did it just driving here because a guy decided to put his signal light on and not go into the lane, and I didn't know what he was doing, and I went... Can we get it together here? I know it's wrong. I didn't even really need James to tell me that this morning. And there's a warning about self-confidence. If these last few years haven't taught you how unstable your best laid plans are. And I know where I ought to put my trust, but sometimes I get lulled into a space where it's just easier to go for something that's more convenient and maybe more comfortable. And I know in myself it's the wrong place to put my trust or my faith. And there's a warning to the rich. We know how money and greed and uh, just get ugly and corrupt people. And I know that the picture that God gives us is he's incredibly generous. I know this already. Why is it hard to be generous and why is it so easy to be greedy? We find this verse 17. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And I love that James throws the word remember on there because then it means this is something that you should already know. And he's reminding people this would have been common knowledge for them. 
And what this speaks to is more than, than just that list of black and white rules that we lived off as kids so that we wouldn't get in trouble or so that we wouldn't be punished. This verse is that call and that reminder to, to not just live trying to avoid doing wrong things, but it's this invitation to really, really, really be in relationship with God. Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father doing. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. And that's what James is getting at here. He's leading us every single day. And it's about tuning our hearts and tuning our ears to listen and to be obedient to where God's leading us. There's always something that he's trying to speak to me about and correct and adjust. Just yesterday, I was out for a walk, and I was down by Eau Claire Market, and, um, and this sounds so lame, um, but then there's just this lady in a red coat, and usually when you're just like walking on the pathway, people don't just kind of come up to you. But she just came up to me and said, can I give you something? And and I said, uh, she opened up this piece of paper, and it says, hey, God really loves you. And I thought, okay, cool. And then she said, can I pray for you? And I thought, yeah. She didn't seem like a real weirdo. Because um, <laughs> sometimes weird people want to come up and pray for you. And then I go like, I don't know. I believe in God. I don't know which God you believe in. Um, but this lady, it was just like, no, she was cool. And then she just said, hey, is there anything specific I could pray for you? And there was some stuff on my head, but then I just went, ah, no, just whatever you feel to pray. So I'm like, I don't know this lady. I don't want to be like, <laughs> pour out my heart. And she prayed, and it was just this sweet little moment. She, she prayed that I would know Jesus more uh, today than I did before. Like, just some great prayers. But as I'm walking away, it's like the Holy Spirit said to me, you know, you had some things. You could even ask her to pray for church tomorrow. You're preaching. Yeah. <laughs> so this lady comes up to you and says, can I pray for you? And then... So then what, did you chicken out because you didn't want her to pray for you? And he corrected me on something, and I knew what I ought to do. I ought to have said, yeah, here's three things that you could pray for. And I didn't do it. And then he corrected me on it. And if you can care about something so ridiculous like that, man, he's always speaking to us. And maybe you could come to the keys, Pastor Debbie. But God doesn't want us to just follow a list of rules. This whole book of James, one of the things that frustrates me about it is it just feels like it's James telling me what to do all the time. And he's always correcting me, and he's always right, and he's so annoying. Like, we could have just taken, we could have ended at the judgment one today, and I would have had plenty to work on until we gather again the next time. But 
But he doesn't want it to just be following a list of rules. He's correcting things that are way out there. But this verse 17, I can't shake it. He wants us to live in sync with the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did. So this morning, um, I just want you to, to take a moment and go, okay, God, uh, Eric's preached, did okay. But what do you want to say to me? What, what's from these three warnings, what's your correction to me? What do you want me to change? What's an area maybe that you're exposing in my heart? Maybe you're a habitual judger to the point that you don't even realize you're doing it anymore. That was me many years ago. Meet somebody and they're like, certain careers, I'd just be like, this person's gonna be super boring. I didn't even give them a chance. Have you made your money or your own strength an idol? Have you placed your trust in something or someone other than Jesus Christ? Or have you been corrupted by a love of money? So she's going to play. We already had a beautiful time encountering Jesus earlier. But now this is a time where, from the word, I believe God's going to bring some correction. And don't, don't, don't try and get five things. Just get one thing and, and change that one thing like one tiny degree this week. And that's growth. That's looking more like Jesus. So I'm going to stop talking, and we're just going to take a minute and say, okay, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want to do? What do you want to adjust in my life today?